Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean to learn about this past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi, a PhD candidate at Princeton University. And I'm your co-host, Scott Eric. I'm a PhD candidate at the City University of New York Graduate Center. And I research the extraction of fish, pearls, sponges, and oil off the coast of southeastern Arabia. Glad to have you here, Scott. And today we are here to talk to Professor Steve Mintz, who is a professor of English at St. John's University in New York City. His academic expertise include environmental criticism, the blue humanities, Shakespeare studies, early modern European poetry, and critical theory. He has published five single-authored books, including most recently Ocean, published in 2020, Breakup, The Anthropocene, published in 2019, the Shipwreck Modernity, published in 2015. He has edited and co-edited six other volumes, published many chapters and articles in scholarly journals and collections, and organized exhibitions and symposia on blue humanities topics. His research has been funded by the Rachel Carson Center in Munich, the National Endowment for Humanities, among others. And we are happy to have him here with us today to talk about his latest book, The Blue Humanities, published by Routledge in 2023. Blue Humanities is the first textbook to explore the many ways humans engage with water, utilizing literary, cultural, historical, and theoretical connections and ecologies to introduce students to the history and theory of water-centric thinking. Comprised of the multinational text and materials, such each chapter will provide readers with a range of primary and secondary sources, offering a fresh look at the major oceanic regions, saltwater and freshwater geographies, and the physical properties of water that characterize the blue humanities. This chapter engages with carefully chosen primary texts, including frequently taught works as Herman Melville's uh, Moby Dick, 
Samuel Taylor's uh, College, uh, Realm of the Ancient Mariner, uh, Homer's Odyssey, and Louis Vaz de uh, uh, Camus's uh, Luciades. Uh, Luciades to provide the perfect pedagogy for students to develop an understanding of blue humanities chapter by chapter. Readers will gain insight into new trends in intellectual culture and the enduring history of humanity, of humans thinking with and about water ranging across the many coastlines of the world ocean to Pacific clouds, Mediterranean lakes, Caribbean swamps, Arctic glaciers, Southern ocean, uh, rainstorms, Atlantic groundwater, and Indian Ocean Rivers, providing new avenues for future thinking and investigation of the Blue Humanities. This volume will be ideal for both undergraduate and graduate courses engaging with the environmental humanities and oceanic literature. Welcome, Steve, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your book. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me, Ahmed and Scott, and thank you for that um, wonderful introduction. It's our pleasure to have you. Can you start this off, please, by saying a few words about yourself? That is where you grew up, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study, and if you mm-hmm. would like to mention any influential mentors or texts. Um, sure. Yeah, I, I'm happy to do that. Um, I grew up in the Northeast uh, in New Jersey. I live now on the Connecticut shoreline, just a little bit Northeast of um, New York City, uh, sort of halfway between New York and Boston, I guess. And, and I do mention the the bases because although this is a global book and a global project i'm i come to it very much through my own local experience of the um of the north atlantic ocean um in particular a little piece of long island sound that is uh you know down the street from where i live in Bradford, connecticut um i go swimming every day in the in the summertime when the water's warm enough and um i think a lot about how the experience of being an ocean swimmer um, you know, affects me as a thinker and a writer and a teacher. Um, this is a book that tries to engage with the experience of living in proximity to water, um, salt water, sort of as a, a kind of dominant form. Most of the water on our planet is salt water, but also fresh water, ice, humidity in the air, um, water and water in um, mammalian bodies and things like that. Um, so, in terms of my academic background. Uh, I did my PhD nearby at Yale University in the late 90s. Uh, I've been teaching since the early 2000s at St. John's University in Queens. Um, yes, I do have a long commute, but, you know, that is the academic life sometimes. And, um, you know, in terms of influential mentors and colleagues, I mean, I feel like I've been, uh, you know, to, to borrow a bad sort of cliched metaphor, riding a wave of blue scholarship over the last uh, couple of decades. And I've been really fortunate to get to work with people um, like uh, Glenn Gordonier and Eric Rurda at the Williams Mystic Institute, uh, the Munson Institute for Maritime Studies at Mystic Seaport in Connecticut, who um, uh, I was part of an NEH uh, summer seminar with them in 2006, quite a long time ago now. And, um, you know, just been really fortunate to be, uh, you know, engaging with a global ocean studies and water studies community from Australia to Europe to South Africa to um, uh, New Zealand and and many other places. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, Before delving into the book, we would like to know where, how, and when you wrote an introduction to Blue Humanities. Please Mm -hmm. tell us about the research and writing process. 
Sure, I'm very happy to. Um, I mean, this is a book that really comes out of the research on, uh, you know, water literature and culture that I've been doing for the last couple of decades. Um, it is, um, so in some sense, a culmination of a project that I began in the 2000s when I turned from doing um, sort of exclusively kind of literary research about um, prose fiction in the age of Shakespeare to looking at the relationship between water and culture, starting with the book on shipwreck, and actually even before that, a book on Shakespeare and the sea. Um, and then, you know, I am one of the people that has been using this term blue humanities or sometimes blue cultural studies, um, among other terms that people have been using to talk about um, oceanic and maritime cultures. And so it, it sort of felt like in the early 2020s that there's we've had a couple of decades of this kind of work across different literary and cultural fields, including ocean history and um, environmental studies and ecological studies. And it sort of felt like it was time to do a, a volume that so, tried to synthesize and bring some things together, um, you know, to introduce the field to new people and also to have a sense, um, a sense that's, you know, going to be out of date, you know, all, you know, pretty much now, now that the book is finished and, and in a solid state, it's going to continue to be out of date because the field is changing and developing, you know, week by week and month by month. Yes, indeed, that's the case with all of our work. Um, yes. <laughs> can you tell us what's the essential focus, focus of the book, an introduction to blue, uh, blue humanity, mm -hmm. and how does it differ from traditional approaches to studying water and sports? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the idea that I was trying to get at in this book is to try to see what kinds of continuities and connections I could draw between the different kinds of scholarship that we do about water and human culture. Um, the structure of the book, um, you know, touches on many of the different maritime basins. So there's an Atlantic, a Pacific, an Indian Ocean chapter, a chapter on the Southern Ocean, a chapter on the Caribbean, and on the Arctic Sea. Um, but it also, at the same time, tries to stretch our more traditional sort of saltwater um, saltwater basin structures of thinking by also thinking about different forms of freshwater, including water in all three phases, uh, you know, solid water or ice, liquid water, uh, gaseous water in the atmosphere, and also, you know, the kinds of, you know, water in the human body, water in clouds, water in rainfall, water, water in lakes and springs. And, and I'm really trying in this project to connect um, what is in some sense, I think, a long history of trying to think with oceans as geographic and cultural structures with all these different, more intimate and more um, and, and varied ways in which we, we engage with water. Fantastic. You know, kind of related to that and to the intimacy with water, one of the central contributions of this book seems to be that the Blue Humanities isn't just this emergent body of you know, scholarly work, this wave you said that you've been a part of in writing, but a methodology, um, you mm -hmm. call it an interpretive method for research and scholarly inquiry that, as you say, links human-sized encounters to planetary processes. Mm -hmm. And you also call it um, a, a, a theoretical leading edge of this methodology, as you say, is embodiment, and in your case, specifically swimming, and in the case of some other scholars that you lay out in the conclusion. So could you tell us a bit more about these closer intimacies between humans and water and how they can be generative for scholars who 
are very often confined to the realm of archives and libraries. Yeah, I, I think. Thank you for that for that question, Scott. I think that's really helpful in in bringing out one of the things that seems to me at least very distinctive about this uh, developing body of scholarship, which is that it is um, it it tries as much as possible, um, you know, given the limits of geography and individual circumstances and and other things to to think in practice. Um, we are all in contact with water all the time, although not everybody, you know, is in contact with the same water. Um, but one of the things that I try to do and that many of the um, writers and thinkers and creative artists who I engage with, I think, are trying to do is to understand the human relationship with water as really um, divided through both pleasure and risk. Um, through, uh, you know, an, an engagement with the aesthetic and um, supportive elements of water as a, um, you know, both a necessary quality for human life and also a kind of aesthetic and beautiful object, and also think seriously about the dangers that flooding and, um, you know, forced maritime migrancy um, and other kinds of you know, destructive storm surge and, and other kinds of um, violent engagements with water both have historically had over the course of, um, of human history and also increasingly so now um, in an age of sea level rise and, and increasingly um, violent storms. You know, I think that dialectic between pleasure and risk or that, you know, binary of pleasure and risk, I think is so pervasive throughout a lot of Blue Humanity scholarship for a very, mm -hmm. you know, good reason. Um and I think one of the texts that to me, and I think to so many scholars, as you point out in the book, really captures that is Melville's Moby Dick. Um, yeah. And I just, that, that chapter, that section in the chapter Brit comes to my mind of mm -hmm. you know, consider the subtleness of the sea. Yep. So, you know, you touch on so many important texts in this book, but Melville's Moby Dick is this book's lodestar, or as you call it, it's ur text. So yeah. can you tell us a little bit more about your decision to weave Moby Dick in throughout this book mm -hmm. and that centrality of Melville to, you know, blue humanity thinking. Yeah, thank you. Um, uh, I do. Um, one of the things that I decided to do structurally when I was setting this book up is to have a kind of Moby Dick element in every chapter. Um, I, you know, there would be other ways to do it. You could have like a core Moby Dick chapter in, in the book. Um, but I, I thought that distributing Melville throughout was really um sort of truer to my sense of the way this novel functions as a kind of shared and, um, you know, a, a text that is both about obsession and uh, a text that many of us in this um, community of scholars and, and uh, writers and thinkers, um, it, it's a text about which many of us tend to be obsessive. And really one of the reasons that Moby Dick sort of gets in my mind and and doesn't get out other than it's like extraordinary qualities as a, as a text is this way in which I've almost never met a water person who doesn't have some particular relationship to Moby Dick. And I'm thinking here, especially about non-literary water people, marine scientists and sailors and, um, you know, sort of people in a broader world of water connection that aren't necessarily going to read, you know, huge 19th century literary novels. Um, and I think that Moby Dick has this um, sort of, I mean, it's both a very weird, weird book and also a book that is about a shared obsession and experience that I think many people 
including non-literary and non-academic people have a relationship to. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to use it as a kind of through line or a, or a kind of secret thread tracing through the book is to think about what this text does for us and why it is that we're so obsessed with it. Thank you. And we see that uh, across the the 10 chapters of the book, um, which is also supplemented by an essential reading, readings less blue humanities. Uh, how does the book use literary, cultural, historical, and theoretical connections to introduce students to the concept of water-centric thinking in the blue humanities? Um, you know, I I think that that uh, thank you, Ahmed, for that question. I I think that you know, literary culture, poetic culture, narrative culture in this book serves as a kind of a test case. It's a a way in which it, you know it provides examples of the way in which humans imagine ourselves to be in physical, metaphorical, emotional, and, and sometimes also political contact with water. Um, so the symbolic value of water in a novel like Moby Dick, in an epic poem like Camus Lusiads, in you know, a novel like Robinson Crusoe, um, in uh, you know, contemporary Caribbean literature or contemporary poetry from Oceania, um, we have in these in these representations very different kinds of relationships with water in very different forms. Um, but we also have a um, like literature and poetics in, in particular serve as a kind of experimental conceptual way to sort of try out different kinds of relationships between humans and water. And really that's the that's the attraction of literary forms for me is their variety and experimental nature. Um, you know, I'm also of course trained as a you know my PhD is in English literature and I'm trained as a literary scholar. That's what I teach in my day job. But I also think that literature is particularly useful in enabling us, you know, from the point of from the individual limited points of view, we can try out different forms of understanding how we relate to um what in the in one of the introductory chapters I call planetary water. I think that that trying out is such an important quality for scholars working, you know, across disciplines and everywhere. You know, Ahmed and I, before this conversation, we're talking about how I'm an anthropologist, you're a literary scholar, Steve, and Ahmed's a historian, but how rubrics like the Blue Humanities allow us to kind of reach across um, in certain ways and draw on other disciplines in a way that we're not always encouraged to do, especially as early career researchers like Ahmed and Mm -hmm. I. And in that vein, one thing I was really impressed by in this book is how you touch on a range of kind of different scholarly worlds in these chapters. You know, if we imagine the Mediterranean, the Black Atlantic, the Indian Ocean, the Caribbean, you know, the Pacific Sea of Islands, as each being their own world that encompasses the literary, the historical, and have their own historiographic tradition and theoretical tendency or intellectual genealogy. So, you know, you're this book is one of the first that I've seen that really synthesizes, like you said earlier in the conversation, synthesizes all of these worlds together. You know, like many scholars have, you know, they touch on Brodel, or maybe they talk about Christina Sharp outside of the Atlantic, you know, like that's very useful, mm-hmm. or Pele Haofa. You know, all of these authors are used by many scholars in the Blue Humanities. But by putting this together, by synthesizing them into a type of, you know, canon, for lack of a better word, what do you hope readers will get out of putting these worlds, which are often separated by these disciplinary boundaries, into conversation with one another? You know, let's say an undergrad. Um, thank you, Scott. That's a really uh, 
sort of exciting prospect. I mean, I, I think that one thing that I certainly imagine will happen with this book is that it will not always be, you know, it, it, it is true that not everybody reads a book from page one to page under whatever, you know, um, that, that it will be mined specifically by people who are interested in the Caribbean or the Mediterranean or the Southern Ocean or whatever. Um, I do think, especially in the <clears throat> introductory chapters that are more comprehensive, um, and uh, in a larger sense, in the sort of sweep of the of the whole project, that it tries to show ways of connection between discourses that are really distinct from each other. Um, it, it is absolutely true that there's a radical difference between you know scholarship on you know, classical antiquity in the Mediterranean and scholarship on indigenous poetry in the 20th century, 21st century Pacific. I mean, in many ways, those things are radically untethered to each other. Um, And one of the, I mean, I might call it one of the animating intellectual fantasies or hopes of the blue humanities is that we can figure out ways to bring unlike things into conversation with each other. Um, That uh, there is a geographical structure of this. We know that the world ocean is a single body of water and that the water that's in the Mediterranean, the water that's in the Pacific are the same water. They're connected to each other. Um, and there is also, w- while recognizing the, you know, limitations of any single person's expertise and, and, um, sort of ability to master, you know, so many different, um, highly technical and concentrated and rich, uh, areas of scholarship. There is, I think, in the project of this book, and maybe for many of us, or some of us at least, the larger project of the Blue Humanities, an idea of connection um, that allows for difference, celebrates difference, but also recognizes some, you know, shared similarities, um, shared attitudes, shared shared positions in relationship to a a, a watery body that is both. Um, you know, as we talked about before, both alluring and deadly, both risky and um, uh, and beautiful. Yes, and in addition to talking about oceanic regions, the book also touches on saltwater, freshwater geographies, the very physical properties of water. So I was wondering, how does the book address the environmental humanities and its relation to oceanic literature across these chapters? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, thank you, Emma. That's a that's an interesting way to put it. I mean, I, I think that I'm I'm trying in the book. I mean, I do think of the blue humanities as in kind of deep contact with the oceanic or sorry, with the environmental humanities, with with the sort of broader movement in the 21st century to um, think culture and historical scholarship in relationship to environmental change and particularly to the, you know, radical environmental change that we call the Anthropocene or whatever other scene we want to, scene term we want to use on a, on a given day. Um, and, and I think that like part of my reason over the years for going back to Oceanic culture in connection to thinking about the Anthropocene and the current age of environmental uh, catastrophe is because as our environment grows less hospitable, less like the way it has been for much of human um, human civilization, the 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 environment is becoming more and more oceanic. Um, this is like literally true in the sense that sea level is rising and water is going in places we haven't been expecting it to go. 
And I think it's also metaphorically true because in, in, um, you know, human cultures shared reservoir of stories and poems and ideas about humanity and nature. So many of our most resonant stories about a hostile environment have to do with things like with, with maritime culture have to do with the experience of being at sea, um, either, you know, alone, like a shipwrecked sailor, um, or even at sea in a, in a community under threat. And so the, the stories that the blue humanities enables us to think about are stories about an environment that is hostile, you know, not, not so hostile that everybody dies instantly. It's not an apocalypse story, um, but it's a story about needing to struggle in an environment that makes things difficult for you. And, and I think that those stories are especially relevant to the current situation of the environmental, the environment and the environmental humanities. You know, I think obviously we're right now, you know, this week, last week right in a, in a moment where all of this feels so urgent um yeah and i know you know there are those of us in the environmental humanities who have you know those of us who were even before i was born you know who've been talking about this urgency but right now we're it feels like we're hitting another fever um in the anthropocene or like you said whatever we want to call it um yeah but i do want to kind of ask you in terms of you know i see i see your work Steve, as being a large part of this blue humanities and oceanic thinking, but then you also contribute to this conversation on the Anthropocene. And it's something that, you know, I think we can talk about the the specifics of the term or, you know, I, I'm just curious, where do you see the blue humanities as fitting in, as complementing that conversation on the Anthropocene, Capitalocene, Plantationocene, you know, like you say, the many scenes. Um, yeah. Or as being something separate and something that helps us, you know, build toward a, a shared understanding. You know, how do you see these two kind of, because mm. I see them as almost distinct bodies of if I'm talking to some scholars about the Anthropocene, the blue humanities might not be legible to them. Um, mm. So how, how do we, you know, put these in conversation with one? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. Um, I do think that these, that these, um, I mean, you're, you're right on some basic level, of course, that like Anthropocene discourse and water discourse are like they they have they touch each other but you know the venn diagram is not overlapping um but as i was just saying a, a minute ago i think that one of the things that blue humanities water studies can give to the anthropocene is a recognition of the presence in human cultural history of uh you know like a, a, a series of engagements with the hostile environment um uh, I, I recognize, you know, like this was the hottest week on record as, as far as back as the records go, or maybe it was the week before last, I'm not sure. Um, it was maybe the first week of July, but, um, you know, the, the sense, the overwhelming sense from the science that we're like entering novel territory that we've never been in this place before. And there's like absolute, you know, um, scientific and, 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 um, you know, sort of technical accuracy to all of those, uh, uh, all of those observations, and I don't want to downplay them. I think they're incredibly important as motivating structures. But I also think that the the one thing that thinking with water can remind us is that we have a long history as humans of understanding our relationship to a hostile environment. And like sometimes, though, you know, I I wrote in um years ago in the in the sort of beginning of the of this project for me 
I wrote about the difference between um, sailors and swimmers on the one hand and um, like emperors and warriors on the other, right? That there's this long history of like the, the dominating masculine hero figure. Um, and alongside that, in a slightly different and maybe in some sense lower key, there are these figures who aren't necessarily dominating in the same way or not, not in the same uh, kind of violent way, um, but have sort of, are sort of figuring out how to manage in a hostile environment. Um, obviously, in lots of cases, we have characters who, who are like alternately one and the other, like Odysseus, for example, is both a you know, violent dominator of humans when he has the chance and also a good swimmer and sailor when he is um, forced into that situation. And so I think that the, the, the narratives and understandings of relationship with a hostile environment that can be surfaced by the blue humanities are particularly valuable in an age in which um, there's both more water around and also just more environmental hostility around than perhaps we've been used to. Yeah. You know, I think it's, it is a great, you know, way to, for example, like, you know, I was kind of gesturing or asking at before thinking with undergrads about, let's say Melville, um, and the idea that Noah's flood has never ended, you know, the idea, a hostile environment or thinking with Coleridge and the rhyme of the ancient mariner Mm -hmm. and the nature of ice, you know, the nature of ice ropes or the nature of, you know, killing nature in that sense of the albatron. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think in a lot of senses, it's that timeliness, like you say, that long history of living in hostile environments that feels, you know, if we're reading the news, it feels so contemporary, but it has right. this, like say, this long historical and literary tradition that is, I think, accessible to many students. So Yeah, I, I think so. And I think also accessible, like to the extent that Coleridge and Melville are accessible, and I think they, they can be and sometimes are. But also accessible to people who like, you know, living through the heat waves of this summer and the, you know, the big storms of the last decade in various parts, you know, of, you know, various parts of the world. Like, I think we recognize um, hostile environments driven by water that feels from a human sense out of place, whether it's like storm surge, you know, coming into your neighborhood or um, you know, flooding in your basement or whatever. Like we, we recognize something about the experience of being in an, uh, a, a, an environment that's super saturated by water in ways that feel really destructive and, and actually are destructive to, um, you know, to human, uh, human thriving or, or at least human ease maybe. Yes, uh, indeed. And I would like to ask you about, uh, embodiment and phenology and how did you mm-hmm from that, and I know you talk about that uh, in different venues and writing and thinking about blue humanities. In, in, in embodiment and chronology, did you say? Uh, yeah, in, in, in drawing uh, from your own uh, experiential, let's say, uh, relationship with water uh, and mm-hmm. shaping your thinking of blue humanities. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, I, I, sorry, I, I wasn't sure I understood the question. Um, so yeah, I mean, I again, one of the things that I often do when I'm working on any kind of a, a academic or para-academic, you know, sort of watery project is if I'm thinking about something, I will, uh, you know, take it for a swim. I, I will, you know, one of the nice things about swimming is that nobody can send you an email or, or even like get your attention very easily because your head is down on the water. And so I, I use it as a kind of meditative practice to think about 
ideas and language and the kinds of ideas and the, and the forms of language that I want to use. Um, so embodiment is really important to me um, as, a, as a writer, as a swimmer, as a you know, thinking human. Um, and I'm also really influenced, as I think many people in our Blue Humanities community are, by the work of uh, Estrita Naminitz, the um, feminist uh, eco-philosopher um, who's now based in Canada. Um, uh, in her book, Bodies of Water, she thinks about the relationship between you know bodies of water like lakes and oceans and rivers and streams, but also bodies of water, including human bodies. Um, and she provides a kind of feminist rereading of material embodiment um, through watery connection that uh, that for many people I think in this discourse very much including me has been you know deeply inspiring and 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 incredibly useful and applicable in in the way that you know we in academic culture sometimes find ideas that feel um, so rich that they're, they're they're like too good not to move them into other discourses and so I I, I think a lot about embodiment through um through Asrita's way of, of um sort of building out um ecofeminist um phenomenology. Um but also so, so there is both a I guess an intellectual genealogy question way to answer that and and also an experiential one. Um I echo that and I find it to be the best way to clear up my head and when I <laughs> yes my writing uh more than more than I would say walking or working out or other activities. Thank you for sharing that. Um, mm -hmm. You supplement the book with essential readings list. And I'm wondering what was the criteria in, in selecting these readings? And do you have stories or connections or uh, experiences you would like to share uh, about these readings? Yeah, I mean, I, I went back and forth on this and, and I, you know, you don't want it to be, I, I was looking for, um, Oh, again, thinking about this book as a book of introduction, that someone could come to this who was an undergraduate or early early stage graduate student or or even, you know, a researcher in a cognate field who just want to know what this whole business of the Blue Humanities is about. So I wanted to be um, fairly comprehensive in the sense of trying to give a sense of the different um, discursive currents and flows that are moving from different parts of the world, different uh, you know, scholarship that comes out of Black studies, out of Indigenous studies, out of Mediterranean and uh, Pacific studies. Um, and I also didn't want to just duplicate the, you know, the bibliography that's right before it in the book. So so I tried in the essential reading, which is ended up being too big to be like a, a, a provisional course syllabus, right? You can never read all these books in, the, in that semester, even if you're like really driving your graduate students hard. But it it is a little bit of a portrait, a snapshot as of you know 2022 when I was putting this together, um, a snapshot of where um, the discourse has been in the last you know dozen or fifteen years or so. Um, I tried mostly to include things that had been published quite recently, so the late teens or the early twenties, um, and I also limited myself to just one book per author. So I, you know, there's lots of people on that list who have written, you know, multiple really interesting things that, that people use in this discourse. But I also tried to just sort of, you know, limit myself to one representative work from each, um, 
each each figure on the list. I also like, you know, as it's always true, like when you make a list like this, you always think about the things that get left off of it and even the things that have come out since this book was in press uh, that, that I couldn't include on it. And so I wouldn't want this list to be seen as like, I mean, someone, I can't remember which one of you it was, mentioned the word canon before. And, and I think like a lot of literary scholars, I have a kind of aversion to the word canon as a, uh, you know, as a, as an exclusionary device traditionally in literary studies. And I both recognize the need to gather together something like a, you know, common shared reading list, but also um, I'm quite like, I would want all lists like this to be infinitely revisable, both because there's new stuff coming out and also because the, the ways in which new scholarship and emerging scholarship in this field is going to ask us to reconsider you know, elements of the history of the last 20 years of the humanities scholarship that, that are not immediately apparent to me right now, but will be apparent to someone else in five years or 10 years. That sounds about me. Uh, I just going to say, it's really exciting, and I think it's a great resource, Steve. So thank you for compiling well, it. it is what well, thank you. I'm glad. Uh, I, I would I would like to see an annual update for the list, maybe <laughs> on, on, the, on your side. Well, you know, actually... There are two big public Zotero bibliographies. Uh, this was one of the things when I was first starting this book, I was like, oh my God, how am, how am I going to keep track of all this stuff? Like in some ways, like you could almost like, you know, every couple of weeks, it seems like there's, there's new publications in the, in these broad fields. And like, there's no way, I mean, because of the way book publishing works, you know, it's not instantaneous. Um, you know, I, I submitted the manuscript in November of 22. And it just came out a couple of weeks ago. Um, so even in that window, there's been a lot of publications. But there are two public Zotero bibliographies, one for the Blue Humanities and the other for, I think it's termed coastal history. It might be coastal history slash ocean history. And um, they're absolutely fantastic and they're constantly being updated. So um, so, so that does exist. I mean, the, the, the shorter version, the essential reading that I put in the book is uh is just a you know it's it's 30 odd text as opposed to i think the coastal history is up to two or three hundred and the blue humanities one is about 150. so so this is just a, a little slice out of that but these larger public um you know collaborative bibliographies are a thing in the world right now and and i definitely you know i, I mentioned them in the book and i recommend them to people as well i'm glad that you brought it up and i uh would like listeners to go and take it out and contribute to this great project. Mm -hmm. um, you've titled the book as an introduction, and when I see uh, the word introduction on the title, I find the book to be not intimidating, welcoming, mm -hmm. and uh, an, an easy read. Uh, so, who who is the intended audience for this book? Who would you like it, uh, you know, to 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 take it and read it and engage with it? And how would you like that to be? Yeah, I mean, I very much intend this book to be. Um, as I think we mentioned a little bit earlier, to be it, it's it's for people who are not you know like in some ways all the people who are close into the center of this field like will find a lot of stuff in here they already know. Um, but so this is designed to expand the the circle of the blue humanities, if you will, people who are interested broadly in you know some aspects of maritime literature. Maybe they occasionally teach Melville or The Tempest or something like that. And they'd like to uh, connect themselves to this broader conversation about water and human culture. 
Um, so it is for teachers, it is for students uh, at all levels, undergraduate and, you know, master's students, doctoral students. It's also for uh, practitioners and and uh, and creative artists. I, I've, I've been incredibly inspired and amazed by how many, you know, artists of different kinds in the contemporary world are working with water in different ways and in conceptual art, in visual art, in, um, you know, uh, narrative artists, filmmakers, um, that there's an incredible body of creative work that's dealing with uh, sort of ocean adjacency or ocean intimacy or water intimacy, I might say. Um, and I I would love to have those people also, you know, dip into this book, even if they're not necessarily, um, you know, professorially inclined. Um, maybe I'll just mention one other thing, which is the, the cover of the book is, um, is a sort of sunrise photo that I took of my local beach um, with, you know, a picture, it has a little picture of a cormorant and a, and a boat and a couple of swimming buoys and a couple islands and a sailboat on the horizon. And it's very local in this sense, right? It's a picture that I take almost every morning when I get up and take the dogs out and go to the beach with them. And um, so I, I very much feel like this is a, a project that I have, that I've taken so much from my local community, from the lands and waters of, of Short Beach, Connecticut, from the human and non-human collaborators in my in my sort of swimming and beachcombing culture, and um, and I do also think of this as as a book that is um, you know like it's mainly for academics. We're going to read it in a weird way. It's also for that cornbread who's sitting there on the on the surface of the water, uh, just about to go down after another fish. Um, and, and it is my attempt to bring to bear the, you know, the skills that I have, uh, that I've learned to have as a professor and a writer and a scholar to, um, you know, to give, to, to reflect back to the oceanic world, the watery world, a little bit of the kinds of things that some of us are trying to, um, conceptualize and, and produce in, in dialogue with that, with that larger, um, uh, you know, planetary water body. Yes, and I hope the, uh, the the also scholars from different disciplines dare to pick up the book and try to engage with it, mm. um, because the book does uh, invite uh, you know the different disciplines uh, to to think uh, through blue humanities about their different mm -hmm. approaches and methodologies. Um, I, I told a friend of mine that I'm going to talk to you about your book today, and mm -hmm. and he told me that. Um, well, this sounds like, um, I don't know if you know the, this novel called The Covenant of Water by Abraham Burgess that came out recently, last May. And your book just came out and he's like, oh, this book is going to be Oppenheimer to the Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I don't know that book, but, uh, you know, it's always nice to be mentioned in the same breath as Barbenheimer, I guess, although I, I, didn't, I didn't see any movies this past weekend. Oh. <laughs> I, I would recommend that I was a really good novel to think also about water. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, it is that, I guess. And hopefully, <laughs> of the summer. Um, mm -hmm. uh, now the book is out, and I know it's just being out. Mm -hmm. We like to know about your current and future projects if you would like to. Mm -hmm. I would, the listeners. Sure, I, I, I will. I mean, it will maybe surprise you no know, one um, after hearing about this book. Um, that I have another sort of Melville adjacent project in in the works, 
Um, and it's really kind of a weird one. Um, I wasn't, this, this, it's, it, it started as sort of a private project. Um, and, and I've eventually, you know, brought it, brought it into, into press and it should be out next year, um, which is a book of poems called Sailing Without Ahab, um, which indulges in the fantasy that what we really need is a version of Moby Dick without Ahab, without the tyrannous, obsessive, violent, destructive, white male captain. Instead, we have a kind of fluid you know, Ishmael driven, um, wander through the, you know, the, through the world ocean and through the, um, you know, particular kinds of engagements with, um, uh, you know, with, with marine creatures, including the white whale, um, but also with, um, you know, different kinds of maritime environments. So, so what it is, it's a, as I said, it's a bit of a weird project. It's a book of 137 poems. Um, one for each chapter of Moby Dick, um, and the only sort of required structure is that you can't mention the name of the captain. So in a couple of cases, there's a bracket with some ellipsis in the middle of it in which, uh, in which that, that four-letter word would have appeared. Um, and it's, you know, partly an exercise in kind of hyper-crossed literary criticism in which I go back to this novel that has been important to me for many, many decades, and also an effort to think, I mean, because it's also partly an autobiographical book, and it thinks about, you know, my experience of the the land and water that I that I live near and how um, engaging with it, swimming in it, being alongside it has been important to sort of shape my thinking about um, ecology and, and human experience. So coming in the spring. <laughs> As a consumer of all things Melville, I can't wait to read it. <laughs> I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> we look forward to that and, and maybe have you again on the podcast. This has been... Oh, that would be fun. That would be terrific. Yeah. I would enjoy it. Thank you for joining us, Steve, today and talking about your fabulous new book, uh, An Introduction to the Humanities. And uh, thank you for uh, Scott Eric for co-hosting this uh, episode with me. And thank you for the listeners uh, to uh, for tuning in to listen to today's episode in which we explored an introduction to the Blue Humanities, published by Rutledge in 2023. This is your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.